We will look at Matthew 21 this morning. Matthew 21, page 827 in the House Bible, if you're using one of those. In Matthew chapters 21 and 22, Matthew records how Jesus performed three symbolic acts. Remember, he brought this donkey, had it all prepared. He rode in on the donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And then he went into the temple and he brought his judgment on the temple and cast out all the people in the temple, buying and selling and so forth. And then on his way in and out of Jerusalem, he saw this tree, this fruitless tree not bearing any fruit and he pronounced a curse on it and the thing literally withered and died like in a matter of hours. So Jesus did three things and all of those are recorded here and then he tells also three stories and he told a story about two sons that we looked at last week and then today he we'll see that he tells a story about some tenant farmers. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at a passage where he tells a story about a great wedding feast that a king threw. And each of these, so the three acts and the three stories, all have a kind of similar theme. And that theme is the judgment of God upon unbelief masquerading as religion. And so it's a heavy theme for us to consider the judgment of God, and especially when we consider it as people who are religious, people who claim that we are God's people. And so this passage has much for us, while it's troublesome and and hard to hear, it has much good for us. And I hope that it will have its full effect. Um, This morning, we're going to read about how Jesus told a story. We all like stories, right? And this is a story that you might call uh, New Tenants for the Vineyard. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse number 33. Jesus says to the people, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went away into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, even more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we will have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the people listening to Jesus, they said, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces." And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. 
Jesus is telling a parable. You know what a parable is. Parable is a kind of teaching in mystery form, if you will, a veiled way of teaching something, um, taking the form of a story. But that story makes an important life point. And this is one of those parables, and uh, the next story as well. Uh, but in this case, I think they're even more than parables. You might call them uh, sort of allegorical stories, if you will. An allegory is just kind of like a, a more detailed parable, where all of the various main characters of the story each represent some real-life uh, person or group or something like that. And the immediate context uh, where Jesus explains a little bit about this parable or he makes application of this parable, um, as well as the broader context of the Gospel of Matthew, as well as the Old Testament background for this parable, all indicate that there, are, there is more to this parable than just one main point, that each of these characters in the story has significance. So while we probably wouldn't try to find significance in every little detail, the fence represents this and the tower represents this and the pit represents that, we should look and expect that each of these main characters um, has a corresponding uh, real-life um, point. And so Jesus is telling these allegories to um, the Jewish leadership primarily, the the Jews uh, there in Jerusalem who have come and gathered around him because he's a well-known preacher up in the far north in Nazareth, and now he's come down for the celebration of the Passover. And so I want to take each one of these characters in the story. There's six, I think, six main characters uh, in the story and think about them and what they symbolize and then what this really all means for, for us who are sitting here listening to this parable today. The first main character of the story is the master of the house, as Jesus tells it. And Jesus says that this master was a farmer, a vineyard owner, and he had this farm that he planted, uh, this garden uh, there, um, Maybe uh, a lot of people in those days were farmers. Uh, they grew figs, uh, dates were very common, um, olives, um, and grapes in some places. And so here is this farmer who's planted a vineyard. He's put a fence around the vineyard. Don't think of a you know white picket fence going around our you know your farm around here. This is this is uh, the desert. If you've ever been to the desert, it's just full of sand and rocks, and, uh, you know, they had dirt, of course, and they grew, he cultivated the soil, but there, there's a lot of rocky things, so picture the digging out of all of these rocks, and you make a rock wall around your place, so, so he plants this garden, he digs up the ground, he makes this fence, he digs a, a pit for a, a wine press, and then builds a, a watchtower uh, in the field to protect um, his uh, crops, and all of these elements, actually, are rooted in the Old Testament in a story that was told through the prophet Isaiah. Brother John just read it a few minutes ago. Um, you might want to write it in your Bible if you don't have already a marginal reference. This all comes from Isaiah chapter what? Anybody know? You got it in there? Five. There you go. Isaiah 5. And uh, each of these elements then comes from that. So this is a clear allusion that our Lord is making. I think everybody recognizes this. It's an illusion that the Lord is making to uh, imagery that's already being set out in the Old Testament. And Isaiah chapter 5 or 7 makes the symbolism of that vineyard um, explicit when, Isaiah, when the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, quote, the vineyard of the Lord, this is the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. So it's God who's the vineyard owner. It's he who is the master, all right? That's our first character here. And then we move to the second main character, which is uh, the vineyard itself. And once again, 
the Old Testament story in Isaiah chapter 5 tells us how we're to think about that. Isaiah 5 verse 7, uh, here I'll put it up on the screen for us. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So Israel was God's garden, if you will. Um, just like uh, the Garden of Eden that God first made, remember? That was where man dwelt together with God, so Israel would be the place. Um, Jerusalem would be the place. Among God's people uh, of the Jews would be the place where God would make His presence known. It would, they would be His planting, His garden. Um, even their temple, you remember, was filled with garden imagery. You know, when you went into the holy place, there was a lampstand, but it just wasn't, you know, a lamp sitting there. It was a lamp to made to look like a tree with branches that spread out and gave light and life to all who came. So this was garden imagery all through the, uh, the temple and, and, and that characterized the people of Israel. Israel was God's vineyard. And so all of the work of the vineyard owner in the story then speaks of God's love and His care for the people of Israel. He brought them out of Egypt and He planted them into the promised land, into the garden of that holy land. He drove out their enemies. He provided and protected them. He cared for them. He cultivated them. He grew them into a mighty vine whose strong branches, quote, reach to the sea, Psalm 80, verse 11. And then he looked to Israel to bear fruit, for His glory. But in spite of all of His care and His love, those people were barren every year. Year after year after year, He looked for them to be fruitful and they lived in sin, even though they claimed to be God's people. They did not live lives that were pleasing to God. They did not have faith true faith in God, but they turned away from Him and followed after idols and went after their own ways. So Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, the Lord says, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? This is the vineyard. And then we have a third character, and it's in verse 33. And that is the tenants of the farm. These are uh, tenant farmers that uh, are given the use of the land in exchange for a portion of the crop. As Paul said to Timothy, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. But these vineyard workers were not very faithful at all. Uh, they had begun to imagine the vineyard as their own. They had begun to rebel against the master of the house. And when he came to receive what was his, they had no fruit to give to him. They had nothing to offer him. And so, um, in the Old Testament, God laid much of Israel's blame actually at the feet of her leaders corrupt kings and cheating priests and lying prophets. Jeremiah chapter 12, the Lord sort of mixing the metaphors here, says, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. Shepherds being the leaders, those who should have been the pastors of God's people, the kings and priests and prophets. They have trampled over the vineyard, he says. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. And of course, one of the greatest dangers in Christianity even today are quote-unquote leaders people who should be shepherding the people of God, protecting them, feeding them, watching out for them, 
giving themselves for those people faithfully as under-shepherds of God who yet are taking advantage of the flock for their own profit. And Christianity, so-called Christianity, is filled with people who are lining their pockets with wealth, not faithfully ministering the Word of God to the people, but making a name for themselves. And that's exactly what these ancient kings, priests, and prophets were doing. And this is what Jesus sees going on even in His own day. The ancient peoples of Israel followed their corrupt leaders and so went into apostasy and into unbelief. And now in Jesus' day, it's no better because the Herods are on the throne and the priesthood is occupied by Annas and Caiaphas. And for a prophetic voice for God's people, you have the Pharisees scribes who completely miss the point of the scripture and are seeking to make a name for themselves. These tenant farmers. And that brings us to this. Fourthly, you have the servants. Verse number 34. The landowner in Jesus' story sent these servants to collect his portion of the harvest when it was time to, uh, for the fruit to be ripe, and yet when he sent the servants, the tenant farmers took those servants and they beat them, they stoned them, and they even killed them. Jeremiah had spoken of this long ago, even in his own day. He says, from that day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I, God says through Jeremiah, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets. I've sent my prophets to them day after day, yet they did not hear, listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. Jesus himself told his followers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets. Just like they're going to persecute you, Jesus said, so they, per- they have persecuted all the prophets who came before you. Remember, of course, how in the days of Elijah, the wicked queen had put the prophets of God to death. Elijah, in fact, at one point said, Lord, I'm, I'm like the only one left. Remember how they had taken Jeremiah and cast him into prison or how they took Zechariah and right in the very holy place of God had him stoned. And yet, in Jesus' story, an amazing thing happens. The master, after what happens to his servants, what does the master do? He sends more servants, more servants to implore, to more servants to press his claims, more servants yet as an act of grace. Other servants, verse 36, more than the first the king sent, which speaks of the long-suffering of God, doesn't it? As God sent to Israel and to Judah, prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to preach to them, to warn them of the impending judgment of God, to plead with them, to encourage them with the promises of hope and a future if they would put their faith and trust in God. Oh, the Lord was so merciful. Do you know that the Lord sent prophets to His people over and over and over again for a period of nearly 500 years, he warned the people of Israel. He pled with them through his servants. And in fact, in the very end, in the 20 final years before Judah was finally taken away into captivity in Babylon, the Lord sent at least four different writing prophets to give them warning after warning and teaching and encouragement if they would receive it, promise and hope if they would repent, and threats if they would not. And we can read those passages in our Bibles today. The Lord is long-suffering, isn't He? He is long-suffering. Maybe you're sitting here today, and the reason that you're still alive 
And the reason that you're actually sitting still in a church service, of all places that you could be, is because the Lord is long-suffering. And He sent you yet another sermon that you might hear and receive it, and that it might have its intended effect to bring you back to Himself. Oh, the Lord is full of kindness and patience. He sent servants. He sent other servants. And of course, in Jesus' own day, He looked at the Jews. He looked at the Jewish leadership in particular. And He called them, listen to this, you, He says, are sons of those who murdered the prophets, Matthew 23, 31. In other words, the people in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders of His day, were just like their forefathers who had rejected God's Word again and again and again and again. They were still rejecting it even as He stood in front of them. And so Jesus pronounced a grave judgment He said in Luke chapter 11, verse 50, the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. I mean, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, from A to Z, all the prophets that you have resisted, all the prophets that you have killed, they, the condemnation for all of that is about to fall. If you don't repent, it will come upon this generation, Jesus said. This great judgment would be because of the greatness of their sin. And their greatness of their sin was seen finally and most dramatically. Not just by the killing, the mistreating and the killing of the king's or the master's servants, but finally we see that the master sent his what? He sent his son. In fact, Mark and Luke both record that sometimes when Jesus told the story, he said the the master sent his own beloved son, which echoes the very words of God Almighty who spoke out of heaven at Jesus' baptism and again at his transfiguration. This is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Scripture records that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the, what? By the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Well, the Master sent His Son to the farm, But the tenants looked at the son and they said, hey, the son is the heir. He's going to inherit this whole thing. If we kill him, if we kill the heir, we might get control of the vineyard for ourselves. And of course, the Jewish leadership was very jealous for their power. The political powers that were concerned that uh, Jesus might disrupt the peace of Palestine and so bring Rome uh, down upon them to remove them from their offices. And the priestly powers, the chief priests, were angry that Jesus had, quote, taken authority on himself uh, to cleanse the temple rather than going through, you know, official channels. And the prophets, the The scribes and the Pharisees were envious of the growing sway that Jesus held over the crowds. All through, you could see that people's great interest, the so-called leaders of the people of God, the great interest was to use the the, uh, people of God for themselves and to lead the people of God not in the way of giving God the fruits that were His due, but in a way of making what you can for yourself, a way of unbelief. And Jesus then says in verse 39, really prophetically, he used this story, He says, they took the Son and they, 
What does it say next? They threw him out of the vineyard, and then they killed him. And they would do just exactly that. They would take Jesus, and they would turn him over to the Gentiles, and literally they would take him outside of the city limits, and there they would put him to death on the cross. And Jesus prophesied those things again right here, just a few days before they actually happened. And then that brings us to the last character um, in this story. And that one comes actually in response to a question that Jesus asked when he finished telling the main part of his story. He says in verse number 40, um, when the owner of the vineyard comes, he says, you know, you tell me, what's he going to do? And once again, just like in the parable of the two sons, the answer that they give actually condemns themselves. Verse 41, they said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out that vineyard to what? Other tenants. That's the sixth character of the story. These other tenants. Tenants who will give him fruit in their season. So, uh, the imagery kind of shifts just a little bit, which often happens in a parable, an allegory. These people are not just tenants of the vineyard, they're the vineyard themselves. They're the vine, they're producing, they're going to produce fruit for, for, the, for the king, for the, for the master. Not like these people who've withheld the fruit, who've eaten all the fruit themselves, so to speak. They've made themselves fat off the people of God. Uh, they have not loved and worshipped God, they have not honored God with their hearts, well, he says, it's going to be taken away from you and given to other tenants. And of course, Jesus uh, affirms the answer that they gave um, down in verse 43. If you skip down there, in verse 43, he affirms their answer when he says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It will be given to a, another people. The Jewish uh, leadership had failed the Lord, and, he, and, and the, 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 the kingdom of heaven, as it were, would be taken away from the Jewish leadership and from all who followed them in unbelief and in sin, and it will be taken away from Israel as a whole, and it would be given to another what? Another people. Another, literally, the word is, um, the Greek word is ethnos, which we usually translate as a nation. It's going to be taken away from you, he says, and given to another nation. <laughs> what nation? Well, a, a multinational nation, a multicultural people, people made up, a nation made up of people from every tribe and language and tongue on the face of the earth. A new Israel, if you will, a new people of God, a true Israel, a true people of God, a people who not just honors Him with their lips, but from their hearts, a people whose, whose lives are, are not hip, hypo, hypocritical, but rather a people who give God the fruit that He deserves. Now I want to ask you, why would this new people prove to be any more fruitful than the nation of Israel? Why? Why would you, as a Christian, if you're a Christian here, why would you be any more pleasing to God than the people of Israel? Because while the Old Testament spoke typologically when it said that the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the answer is that it's, the Bible speaks um, in reality in John chapter 15. And here is a key passage, I think, in helping us understand this. If you want to look at it, you can in your Bibles. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Christ spoke of the reality of which the Old Testament people of Israel were only a type or a shadow. Look at what he says. I am the what? The true vine. 
Why don't you just say, I am the vine? Because the vine imagery is already being used all through the Old Testament, right? Who is the vine? Well, the people of God, right? Now, the question is, who are the people of God? Because those people sure didn't seem to be, they didn't prove to be the people of God. Because if you're the people of God, you do the works of God. If you're the children of Abraham, you have the faith of Abraham, right? And he said about them, you claim to have Abraham as your father, but as Paul said, not all of Israel are truly Israel. But Jesus comes to them and he says, I'm the true vine. Literally, the Greek reads this way. I am the vine, the true one. I am the true vine, Christ says, and my Father is the vine dresser. You see, Jesus is using the same kind of imagery that he's using in this story here. My Father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And that whole generation of Israel was taken away, as it were. And really anyone who does not have a life that is pleasing to God, God says, Christ says, will be taken away. But He says that every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes it, God prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. And I tell you this, if your life is pleasing to God, then God is working in you and on you so that you will be more pleasing to God. If a branch bears fruit, then it's God that's making it so and making it so it will continue to bear more and more and more fruit. So verse 3, he says, Already, Christ says to them, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The Word of God through Jesus Christ had already begun to have an effect on His disciples. They had already begun to bear some fruit. And so He says to them in verse 4, Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You want to know why this new people will be any different from the old people? Because the new people will be those who are united to Jesus Christ. And with Christ in them and they in Him, they will inevitably bear fruit. But Jesus gives a sober warning then in verse 6, still in John 15, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And I want to warn us from the words of Jesus that the fiery judgment of God does await any who do not bear fruit, that is, whose lives are not pleasing to God. There's a great and sober warning here. In spite of, uh, of all of God's goodness, they have continued to not give Him the fruit that belongs to Him. They have lived lives for themselves, and He says they will be burned. There is only one hope for you and for me, and that is to be grafted into Jesus Christ the true vine, the fruitful vine. Like a farmer takes a branch off of one tree and cuts it off and then brings it to another tree and cuts a little V-shaped notch in that tree and inserts that first branch in, tapes it up, 
until they literally grow together, till they fuse into one. That's the imagery that our Lord is using here. So, Jesus Christ, listen to me, was, was cut, was pierced for you. He was cut off, as it were, so that you might be grafted into Him who is the true vine. And only in that way can any of us bear fruit. Only in, in, in union with Jesus Christ can any of us have lives that are pleasing to God the Father and give glory to God the Father. But if He is cut off for our sakes, then how can He produce any fruit through us? Look at verse 42. Here's the verse we jumped over. And this is a wonderful contribution, the way that Jesus ties this, ver- this prophecy into this story. This is a wonderful contribution into Jesus' own theology of what lay before him in the near future. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, and now he's going to quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What Jesus is saying is that just like the sun, the stone of the prophets was rejected. In fact, the very Hebrew terms for sun and stone sound almost identical. And not only in Hebrew, but also in Aramaic that Jesus was speaking. So that this is a really a play on words in order to point them back to a passage of Scripture that has great theological significance. The point of the quote is to add an element to the story, as Jesus told it, that is is missing in the actual story, and that element is the vindication of the Son. The Son was rejected. He was taken out of the vineyard and He was killed. Well, what happens to the Son? It's what happens to the stone. The stone that the builders rejected is the Son that the tenants cast out. And what happens to the stone that was discarded? It comes back to be the cornerstone. And what happens to the son that the tenants killed? He comes back to take charge of his father's vineyard. And for a dead son to take charge of that inheritance that rightfully belongs to him, what must happen? Yeah, resurrection, right? And that's exactly what that psalmist was predicting. And that's exactly what Jesus was claiming would happen with him. And that is exactly what his disciples will later proclaim from that very passage in the Psalms. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, they preach Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. This Jesus, they said, is that stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. When is that? That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection of the Son. It's the placement of the stone in its proper place. Jesus goes on alluding to Old Testament prophecy here in Matthew chapter 21. In verse 44... He continues to draw from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 2. If we had more time, if you have time, you should go back and find those Old Testament references because there is a wonder in them. But he draws from them when he says that to them that the the one who falls on this stone, uh, who, who stumbles over this this stone, he will be broken into pieces. In other words, this great stone that that was cast out, the builders said, no, we don't want this stone. And yet God made that stone the headstone, the, the cornerstone, that same stone they would find themselves tripping over to their own destruction. And then he says, and this is from Daniel chapter 2, when that stone falls on them, it will crush them. 
And that, of course, comes from that great um, vision that Daniel has of a, of a stone that's cut out from the mountain without any human hands. It's like miraculous. It's like God does it. It's God's stone. Not a man-made stone to fit in his temple, but a God-made stone that will become the foundation of a, of a new temple and a new people. And that stone comes down and crushes all of the kingdoms of men. And then that stone grows and grows until it becomes a mighty mountain that literally fills the entire earth. That's the kind of prophecy that Christ is drawing upon here. And the point for us is that you either build your life on Jesus Christ, on the foundation of Christ Himself, or you will stumble over Christ and be crushed by Him. For this stone and this sun will rise up in judgment against all who reject Him. But for those who know and admit that they are sinful and that they are barren of any fruitfulness in themselves, those who cast themselves on the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, you know, the Lord will be merciful to them, to those who call out to Him like little children, Hosanna, save us. He will come and bring them into His own and will give them grace upon grace so that they become part of this new people of God who give fruit to Him for His glory. I want to close with Back from uh, John 15, I want to close with the reason that a Christian's life is fruitful. That is, a Christian's life is pleasing to God. Why is that? Jesus said it in John chapter 15, verse 5, and I think there are two reasons here. Why this new people will be fruitful even though the old people were not. Why will these people be different? Two reasons. Number one is in the middle of verse 5. Jesus says this, Whoever abides, what? What are the next two words? In me, he will be pleasing God. He will bear fruit. Whoever abides in me. Christians are different. The, the, the true people of God are different from just those who, who claim outwardly to be the people of God. The true people of God are different because they are identified with Jesus. They are in Jesus who was Himself pleasing to God so that Jesus Himself is their identity. They are in Him. Someone doesn't look at, uh, at a fig tree and say, oh my, what wonderful fig branches. No, they say, what a fruitful what? What a fruitful tree. And all of those branches are lifted up because they're identified with that tree, that wonderful, glorious, fruitful tree. And if the tree is good, the branches are good. That's what the Bible says. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are just as fruitful as Christ is fruitful. You are just as pleasing to God as Christ is. If you are a son of God by union with the one and only begotten son of God, then God says about you, just as he says about his son, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. With her I am well pleased. Why? Because his own Son is fruitful. It is by union with Jesus Christ. It is by the imputed goodness and righteousness and, and, and fruitfulness of Christ that we are accounted to be pleasing in God's sight because we are in Christ. That's part of the answer. And the other part is this. Notice the verse again. Whoever abides in me and I in him... This person bears much fruit. With Christians and in Christians, the very life of Jesus Christ is coursing through their spirits, just like the sap of that tree is coursing through the branches. 
So for a Christian, it is not only me in Christ, identified with Him, united with Him who is my head and my righteousness, but it is also Him in me. His own Holy Spirit indwells us, actually working in us and through us to produce His own fruits actually in our lives. So Jesus lives out His life through His Spirit-indwelt people, pleasing God the Father through them, just like He did all through His earthly life and ministry. So, in other words, I think what the Bible is teaching here, what Christ is teaching is that there is both an imputed righteousness that's not our own, but that belongs to Christ and only is imputed to us as we are in Him. And on the other hand, there is an experiential holiness whereby we actually come to know the Christ life being lived out in us through the empowering Holy Spirit of Christ. As He takes hold of us, as we die to our old self and we live in Christ, He begins to literally live out His life in this world through you and through you and through you and through you and through me. It is, Christ, it is us in Christ and Christ in us. And I tell you this, if you don't see in your actual experience any growth in holiness and fruitfulness, if you don't see that in a man's life, then it doesn't matter whether he says that he is in Christ. There is very little evidence that Christ is in him. But if you will cast yourself on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I tell you this, He will begin to change you. He will begin to live out His life in you. If you surrender yourself to His Spirit, if you listen with faith to His words, and you will cry out to Him. You will cast yourself on Christ alone. He will not leave you the same as you always were. Amen? He will not leave you the same. But He will gradually manifest Himself through you in ways that will surprise your, you, in ways that will shock you, in ways that you will look at life and say, I was never like that before. There's something new going on. There's something different in me a life within me that's alien to me and yet has become a part of me. And that is the very life of Christ coursing through your spirit, producing the fruit of love and joy and peace and gentleness and faithfulness, self-control in all of these ways, pleasing to God. You will look at your life and others will look at you and be astounded that you are not the same person you used to be. You are bearing fruit for the glory of God. And then you know what God will do? God the Father will take the work of His, the, the life of His Son that's being lived out in you through the power of His Spirit. And God the Father will begin in His infinite wisdom to cultivate and to shape you, to bring pressure to bear, to purge away that old part of you that still clings so closely. Through all of His wise ways, He will do those things so that the only thing left is more fruitfulness. That Christ flows through you more unhindered so that you come to know the joy of being in union with God in communion with God, God manifesting His glory through you. So that in the end, when the Master comes, He finds fruit for His own glory. In the end, the vine dresser is magnified by all of the hosts of all of the ages for His wisdom and might taking an old dry stump like you, a branch that was ready to be thrown into the fire and bringing life to it. 
and bringing fruit out of that. And people will say, such a master gardener I have never seen. And God will be praised and His glory will echo through the ages. That's what you're living for. For for the glory of God the Father as Christ works out His righteous fruit in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, submit to the Lord. Cast yourself on the mercy of the Lord Jesus. He is your righteousness and He will bring His righteousness to bear in and through you. But remember this, he says, that without me, you can do nothing. I think that's one of my most frequent prayers. When I'll go to the Lord and begin confessing my sin, thinking of all of the ways that I haven't been um, fruitful, and cast myself on the mercy of Christ, and find Him to be sweet and forgiving, But I love to tell him, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. There is in me, that is in my flesh, no good thing. But I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. May we be people who give fruit to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Father, we pray that you may work in us the Lord Jesus, that Christ himself will be formed in our words, that our words would be his words, and our actions would be his actions, and our thoughts would be his thoughts. Lord, please, right now, hear our prayers. Here we are. We're sitting here in these pews, and we're putting ourselves before you and asking you right now, in all honesty, please strip away all that was old and natural to us, for it was corrupt. And please graft us into the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be a new people for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.